least this morning as we begin the new year. I know I've said this to you before, just a reminder, um, the Bible wasn't originally written with chapters and verses, it just was written, and so sometimes these things get in the way of us understanding the flow of things. This is one of those. So at the end of Hebrews 10, um, it's connected to what we're going to see in what we know as Hebrews 11. And so I wanted to make sure that we put those together because they're really important. So Hebrews 10, 35, and then we're going to read through eleven six. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, this is amazing, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is our life. It is the content of our faith, giving us direction and understanding of who you are and how we are to live and worship you. So guide us now as we walk through this text. In your name we pray, amen. So I want to talk this morning as 2022 begins about the certainty and the conviction of faith. So we read Hebrews 10, 35 through 39. And we are told in God in 38 that God's pleasure is not with those who cower and shrink away from genuine faith. And we are instructed there to not throw away our confidence, for it is of the utmost good for us in our lives. And he's says there, it is of great reward to us to have confidence in God. Over the last couple of months, just examining, and um, I, like you, are, am living in a world that has dramatically changed over the last couple of years, and we have had to adjust. We have had to begin to see things through eyes of faith differently than we ever had previously in our lives. And so it's led me to go back to looking at those who lived before us, particularly those in Scripture. And so I've been spending some time, extra time, outside of the W4 reading in Hebrews chapter 11, which leads me to go back to Genesis, because they are parallel passages. 
Genesis begins to list for us those that walk with God. Hebrews 11 goes back to Genesis and gives us pictures of that and moves forward from that. And so I've been reading about those who have gone before us, who lived in difficult times, who in many ways were alone in their faith, living in their generation. And yet were called to live unique and evil times in which they lived. And so today... I want to just give a little bit of insight of what I have been studying on my own and just remind us of the importance of the aspect of faith as 2022 starts. God's pleasure rests in those who do not shrink and cower away from standing firm in their faith. As a matter of fact, we see in Hebrews 11 and at the end of 10 that God commends those, He's pleased with those who maintain their faith. And verse 39 of chapter 10 says that there is a remnant who do not give in. They do not get run over, but their faith does not waver. It rests and remains in the person of God. And because of that, their souls are saved. They endure to the very end. Faith is not a temporary aspect of our faith, but it is to be one that is incredibly powerfully enduring and has a lasting quality to it. The life of faith in Christ is characterized by a deep trust in God's character and a deep trust in embracing His Word. This has been, by the way, always been the course of design by God that we would live by faith and that our trust would rest in who He is and what He tells us. This path is the only one. You saw that there twice at the end of 10 and in Hebrews 11, it is impossible to please God without what? Faith. So this is really important. If we're going to live in a way that pleases God, then we live by faith. And we ought to learn from those who have gone before us. The scripture affirms live by faith. Now I do like this about those that we read about. They were not perfect, were they? The men and women were not perfect in Genesis and the Old Testament and even throughout history, and yet there was a unique quality about them that rose above even the struggles that they had and in the generation in which they lived. They found a treasure that surpassed anything that the world could offer, and that's why they pursued God with such passion and did not let anything get in the way. The word faith is mentioned in Hebrews 11 25 times pretty important subject matter and as the writer has been going through this whole book from chapter 1 and now getting to chapter 11 it's all been about faith he has been calling them to realize that Christ is the greater one he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament he's the greater Melchizedek he's the great high priest He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the temple. He's greater than the tabernacle. He's greater than the animal sacrifices. Christ is supreme. He is the one in whom our faith must rest. So with all the twists and turns of the last two years, two qualities are needed to continue to maintain our faith moving forward. And that is a certainty in the Word of God and the nature of God and a conviction to remain true in regard to what we know about who he is. So let's begin to walk through this now. Look at 1 and 2 of Hebrews 11. Let's read it again together. Now faith is the assurance 
of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. So let's talk first of all this morning about faith being marked by certainty and conviction. This word now comes into the text here, connecting back to what we just read at the end of Hebrews chapter 10. Our faith can have a strong and abiding certainty to it. We know that God alone is the only place where our faith must rest. He is the only one who gives certainty to our lives. The danger, though, comes in that we would begin to, even as Christ followers, base our faith in other things. So I want to, these things will be up on the screen, and I want to share what I have observed over the years, some of the dangers and pitfalls to Christ followers getting caught up into things that are not really truly genuine faith. There's aspects of faith maybe with them, but they're not true faith. And so let me, let me highlight these just for a moment. If we're not careful, we will have our faith guided by feelings and emotions. Now, I want to make sure I know I say this from time to time. There is nothing wrong at all to have feelings and emotions in our faith. That is natural. We are human beings, but we are not to be guided by those feelings and emotions. We all know that our feelings, emotions, day to day and even throughout a single day can rise and fall depending on circumstances. We all can relate to this. When the days are going really good and the weeks are going really good, God is great. When the days are not going so well and we're really wrestling things, we're wondering, God, where are you? And we kind of have a tendency to maybe not outwardly think it, but kind of live it, that God maybe is not so good. When we're tired, we don't read and we're not as disciplined. And so we've got to be careful that our faith is not guided by feelings and emotions. It's kind of like what you hear sometimes being preached today. There are many preachers and teachers today calling people to a experience. And I believe this, preach Jesus and the people connect with Jesus. You know what you will have every time you connect with Jesus? You will have an experience. You will experience him. If you encounter the living God, you will have that. So the call today is not to an experience. The call is, I want to remind us, the call is Jesus. Connect our lives to Jesus. The second place that we've got to be careful of is sometimes even Christ followers' faith is connected to falsehoods. Depending on where you may have grown up. You may have come to know Christ, but if you continue to embrace other things that are not in the Scripture, aspects of your faith will be connected even to falsehoods. And so it's important for us to make sure that what guides our faith is the truth of God's Word. Christianity is all about truth, and so we want our faith to be grounded in the truth. Here's a third aspect of our faith that's important that we need to be aware of and not be guided by is that many people live faith, their faith grounded by sight. We are not to live by sight, we are to live by faith, but yet many do that. Let me give some examples. Gideon, got a small army. He's about to go against a really large army. And God says, no, Gideon, too big. Let's get some of them away. Tell the men to do this. Gideon, it's still too big. And so God whittles away 
Gideon's army to where there's a remnant of an army that faces a very significant foe and what happens, God moves and God does something. So we are called not to live by sight, but we are called to live by faith. Abraham, God comes and says, hey, I want you to go, and again, this has always been amazing to me, I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. He didn't give him a map. He just said, get all your possessions, get all your animals, get all your people, get all your family, and go, and I'll tell you when to stop. And Abraham does that. He gets everything together, and he goes, and he continues to follow until God says, okay, it is time to stop. And so Abram, at the time who becomes Abraham, did not live by sight. He lived by faith. David, standing before Goliath, sees a nine-foot-nine giant who has a name called Champion. He's champion because he's never been defeated. David can look at Goliath. He sees Goliath there, but he sees God is greater. And so he sees in that, in that moment that God is greater than Goliath. And so David's faith and trust must rest in God. And so our faith cannot be grounded only in sight. An example of this that we do a lot of times, and I did it early on because somebody told me that you ought to do it, and I guess there's not necessarily anything wrong with it, but we cannot determine God's will by having a piece of paper that says pros on one side and cons on the other and listing things out. Sometimes God just calls us to things where everything is in the cons list, and he says, I want you to do this anyway. So we don't live by sight, we live by faith. And here's the fourth thing, and it's where faith must be deeply grounded. We must live our faith in the facts of the truth in God's Word. That's where we rest our faith, in truth. And we stand upon it because we know that His Word has come from Him to us and guides us in what we are to do. So how do we define faith? I'm going to give us three definitions, three principles to define faith that are connected here in these verses. Here's the first thing. Faith is a certainty or an assurance. Faith is a certainty or an assurance. The first part of verse 1 says this, faith is this. Now faith is, and he's defining it, faith is this, it is the assurance of things hoped for. This word assurance in the Greek is a, is a Greek word, hypostasis. Hupo means under, stasis means to stand. It is the picture of a foundation upon which you stand upon. So our faith has great hope connected to it because of the foundation upon which we stand. So what do we stand upon? We stand upon the nature of God and we stand upon the truth of the Word of God. We know about His nature through the Word of God. So we stand upon what is underneath us, what is holding God's people, that we stand confidently in and have this great hope that all of God's promises are going to come true because of the foundation upon which we stand. So this speaks of this foundation that rests upon us or under us And we stand strong clinging to the reality of this. It is an absolute confidence that He is our foundation. And so therefore, our lives have a great security. And so the writer of Hebrews 
communicates faith is an assurance. Faith is a certainty in two aspects. When you begin to break down this word, this Greek word that the writer wrote under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit wrote the scripture through men who wrote the words down. It's interesting to see this. There are two aspects of this. And so the hope is in the foundation of the nature of Christ. And the hope is in the foundation of the Word of God. Let me tell you the definition as you begin to break this Greek word down a little bit further. So as the Spirit led the writer to use this word, he speaks about us standing upon the very nature of God. So now faith is the assurance of the things hoped for. This foundation, we know Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the rock He is the foundation upon which our lives have the greatest security. So not only is it the hope that we have to be confident and have this assurance in the nature of God, but secondly, the second definition of this Greek word meant this. Um, You have a title deed to a car. You have a title deed to your house yet. I don't know if you have anything like that. And you keep it in a safe place. And so this second meaning of this this Greek word was this. It related to title deed documents that were kept in a secure place where somebody couldn't go in and steal it. And it claimed in the title deed, this is the ownership that you have. So when you put both of these words together and begin to define the Scripture, you combine the meanings, we stand, our faith has such assurance and such confidence today because we stand upon the foundation of the nature and the glory of Christ. And we base, watch this, we base our whole confidence in who He is, but also in the whole body of documents that have been written and that have come to us that define what our faith looks like. And it indicates, because God owns the title deed to these promises that are given to His people, and we are the heirs of Christ, So therefore, all of these documents that have come to us in the Scripture, we can have absolute, total confidence in the nature of Christ, the glory of Christ, who He is, and we stand upon the documents that have come to us. This is the meaning of this Greek word. It is really in-depth and really significant. So as this year begins... You know, remember what we said? Gosh, 2021's got to be better than 2020. Nobody knows. We can have hope that 2022 will be better than 2021 and 2020. But if it's not, and that's a possibility, then we as His people, as the world might spiral out of control, we, watch, we stand on a foundation that cannot be shaken. Oh, the world can shake. But God will not shake. And because God will not shake, you and I can have confidence in who He is. So we are to trust in the truth of God's Word, and that gives us the assurance. We are to trust in the nature of Christ that has been revealed in the Scripture about Christ, and that gives us assurance. You know, Jesus spoke about this Himself. At the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, these words are written, Matthew seven twenty four and 25. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, doesn't just listen to them, but lives them out, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. He, he stood upon a foundation 
that could not be shaken. And the rain fell and the rain will fall. And the floods of life will come. And the winds will blow, the winds of our culture will blow their lies and continue to do so. And they will beat upon that life. It will beat upon that house. But that house did not fall. That life did not fall. Why? Because it had been founded on the rock. On the foundation. Jesus says the wisest people in our generation are not those who build their lives on politics or power or position. But they are the ones who hear the words of Christ and live them out in their culture. Those are the wise ones. They don't buy the lies. They know that the winds will come. They know that the floods will come. They know the rains will come, but they stand firm because their life is fixed upon the nature of Christ and the very words of Christ. And so our hope must rest in that reality. So our faith, first of all, is a certainty. Secondly, faith is a conviction. That's the next part of verse 1 there. Faith is the assurance of the things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Let me give you a definition of conviction, a good definition, I think. Conviction is the action of our assurance. It is the action that is connected to our assurance. So ultimately, faith rests on the firm foundation of the promises of God, that they are true and they will be true, even the things that we have not seen with. And so faith in what God reveals to us gives us the assurance of our belief. What does that look like practically in our lives? What does that look like by someone living that out? Well, let me go back to the book of Daniel. There are three Hebrew friends together. Nebuchadnezzar has built a huge statue that when a horn blows, everybody in the kingdom must bow down to the statue. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are like, no, we're not bowing. We bow to one. We have a singular audience. We have a single, single devotion, and that is to our God. And so in Daniel chapter 3, verse 16, they don't bow, and they are brought before Nebuchadnezzar. And so this is what they answered to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel three sixteen. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we really don't even have any need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, that if we don't bow, you're going to throw us into the fire. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And then listen to what they say. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That's conviction. That's, that's, that's the action of living in your assurance, our confidence and our hope in God. Another one in the book of Daniel is that a law has been made because they knew that Daniel pray three times a day and so they go to the king and say can we make a law that if anybody prays and and prays to another god other than this then then they will be arrested and they will be thrown into the lion's den and so they know what daniel is going to do so they pass the law and so the document has been signed that the lion's den is the plight of anyone who prays to any other god and so in daniel six ten. 
Listen to what Daniel did when he heard that the law had been passed. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. And instead of cowering and shrinking back, oh no, the laws have been passed, I can't pray to Yahweh. Here's what Daniel does. He got down on his knees three times a day and he prayed and he gave thanks before his God as he had done previously that's conviction he had the assurance that God was real law had been passed lion's den that's all right I'm going to look to my God and I'm going to pray to my God and I'm going to worship my God and so Daniel ignores what has been signed into law and says no I will pray and I will worship my God conviction is the action of assurance. David could see Goliath, but he was convinced of God's provision. Elijah could see the prophets of Baal. He could see that the sacrifice had been wet and wet and wet, dripping with water. Yet he was convinced that God would what? Light the fire. He would prove himself. Joseph in Genesis could see his brothers. He could see Potiphar's wife. He could see the jail that he was in. He could see his circumstances. He had been forgotten in the prison. And yet he was convinced that God was in control of his life. Hannah could see that her womb was barren. And yet she was convinced that she would cry out to God and God would hear her prayers. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. Much of our faith or not much, or a lot of our faith, aspects of our faith are future-oriented. They, they have not really come to ultimate fulfillment. We believe in heaven. We've not seen heaven. We are not there yet. And yet we stake our lives on the things that the Scripture teaches about heaven and about other aspects of our faith. And ultimately, only God is great. In 1717, King Louis IV of France died. He preferred or referred to himself as Louis the Great. A little bit of pride there when you refer to yourself as great. At one point in his reign, he he declared to the the people of France, I am the state. I, I am France. I am everything. His court was magnificent in its extravagance. And so was his funeral. In the church where the ceremony was held, They placed his body in a golden coffin. Just, again, think of the arrogance that he had. To accentuate his greatness, he had ordered that on top of the coffin, he wanted the cathedral completely dark, and on top of the golden coffin in which his body lay, he wanted one candle to be lit that would just kind of show that he was the light of France. Thousands of people were present in the room when Bishop Massillon began to speak to everyone in the cathedral. And when he got up there and the coffin was before him, he reached forward with his fingers and he put out the candle and he said these words in the cathedral, only God is great. Only God is great. And I think what our world needs today are people like that, men and women, students, boys and girls, adults, 
who believe that only God is great, and we, we have this assurance of what the Scripture says, and we have the conviction to stand in who the Scripture says God is in the aspects of our faith. Look at verse 2 just for a moment. This is the third thing I want us to see this morning as we define this. Faith is the only way to please God. And so verse 2 says, For by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. In other words, God said, I approve of that life. That life that trusts in me. And I want to encourage us to learn as much as we can from people who have gone before us. It is strongly connected in that text there that we ought to learn from the Old Testament. A number of years ago, a famous pastor in our country said, we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. No, we should not. We should read deeply the Old Testament and learn from the men and women of deep faith and how they trusted in God. God strongly commends those whose faith rests in His Word And I remind us, before we begin to look at a couple of examples, the content of our faith, the content of our faith is found in the Bible and nowhere else. I want to say it again out loud. The content of our faith, how we worship Him, how we know who He is, the content of our faith is found in the Scripture and nowhere else. The revelation of God in the pages of Scripture, they take precedent over everything that is written. And here's why. The Scripture was written by the Holy Spirit. It is the greatest book. It is the most important book. And we are to embrace its words. We are to stake our lives, our assurance, our confidence, and we are to learn from those who have gone before us. And so we should take careful consideration about the assurance of what we stake our lives on and the convictions that we live by. And if our convictions and our assurances are not stated in the Bible, then we need to make some adjustments. We need to stand where the Bible stands. And again, we are not waiting in 2022 for a new letter to be written to be added to the Bible. We don't need anything else. We have been given, Peter says, everything we need for life and godliness. It has already come to us, everything that we need. So faith is a certainty in the nature of God, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Faith is a conviction. It is living out the assurance. And faith is, thirdly, commended by God. So now the writer of Hebrews gives three, or he gives a bunch of examples He uses the phrase, by faith, 19 times in Hebrews 11. By faith, this. By faith, this. 19 times. I want to deal with three of them as we finish today. And the first one I want to talk about is creation. Look at verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. This is the, interestingly, the very first example that the writer uses goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Before anything ever was, God was present, Father, Son, and Spirit, and God began to speak. And He began to speak, and as God spoke, He spoke the world into existence, not from 
materials down at the local Home Depot. He just spoke things that weren't in existence and he made them into existence and he made the material world out of things that weren't present. And so by faith, we, we are, and particularly in a culture in which you and I live today in this Western culture, where there's a great denial about God being the creator and God making people and God making the world and there's all kinds of attacks on this reality in our day and time. We are called according to Genesis 1 and we are called according to Hebrews 11 verse 3. We are called to believe though we were not there that God in six days spoke words in everything that we see in regard to the world and and the galaxies came into existence. And one of the, one of the most beautiful things it says, in, it says over and over in Genesis, and God said, and God said, and you get to where Adam and Eve are there, and, and it says this, and God said to them, He spoke to them in the garden about how they were to live their lives. So God's power is immense. His word is immense, and we are to live by faith, embracing the truth that God is the creator of the universe. He spoke into existence the entire universe. There was no material universe until God spoke, until God acted. By faith, we are to have confidence in this reality, as the rest of the scripture doesn't have any other texts that contradict and say something else about other than what Genesis 1 affirms. Six times in Genesis 1, it says, and there was evening and there was morning, indicating what? Days. Indicating time period and days. Further scriptural evidence of this is Hebrews 1, 2, and Psalm 33, 6 through 9. And so the writer of Hebrews goes back to Genesis 1 and says, by faith we believe God is the creator. Amen? He's the creator. And then he begins to walk through some of the early people. So look with me in Hebrews 11 that now in verse 4. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous God commending him by accepting his gifts and though and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. I want to ask you to keep your finger there and go to Genesis chapter 4 with me for a moment. And let's talk about Abel. Abel lived a long, 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 long time ago. So what does a guy in the earliest days of the earth, in the earliest days of recorded history, have to say to you and I in 2022. He has a lot to say to us. So if you'll just stay there, we're going to kind of go back and forth. Um, Genesis 4 and there. Abel teaches us how do you worship in faith. Abel and Cain were the first two that were born in sin outside of the Garden of Eden. We have a rancher and a farmer who are born in sin. They did not choose sin as their parents did, Adam and Eve, but they were born into it. And yet with both of them, they had a choice to 
follow God's commands rightly the way God instructed them. They have a unique relationship with God where God spoke with them directly. Very unique. Spoke with them directly. And as we walk through this, we will see that God is pleased with what God says to do. He's pleased with those who do it. God is displeased with those when He speaks and don't build their life upon what God tells them. It echoes what we come to know in Romans ten seventeen. Faith, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the words of Christ. So Abel is an early example of believing God. Cain is an early example of hearing the words and disregarding what God tells him. And so Abel teaches us how we worship in faith and we trust in what God says to us. And so here are both brothers. Let's just go ahead and look at that text. Let me get back there and let's just read in Genesis 4. Genesis 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And so the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Verse 8. Cain spoke to his brother Abel after that. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth. To receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground. Again he was a farmer. It shall no longer yield to you its strength. And you shall be a fugitive. And a wanderer. On the earth. Let's talk about this just for a moment. Let's talk about these two brothers. So here we have two brothers. Who bring a sacrifice of faith. To the Lord. It's clear that they were told how to do this. God wasn't saying, okay, y'all just do what you want to do. And I'll determine whether or not I accept it or not. It's clear that God was not pleased with how Cain brought his sacrifice. Why? Because he brought it different than what God told him to do. That's why God was displeased. He was pleased with the way Abel brought his sacrifice because Abel brought it in faith and he was obedient to what God told him to do if they were just to make it up on their own what would that be it would be work centered it would be them deciding what would be acceptable to god god tells them it's pretty clear here god tells them how to do this what they need to bring and what he will be pleased with they were aware of the commands of god they had been given to him 
And so God's not just going to reject an action of Cain that God's not been clear on. God had been clear with Cain what he needed to do. So we know that Abel's offering was offered in faith and Cain's was not indicating, watch this, that God cares about how we give and how we approach Him. He not only cares about the quantity of our gifts and what we are to bring, but in the manner in which we bring them and give them to Him. So it seems pretty clear why it was rejected in chapter 4 of Genesis 3 through 5. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, you remember when they heard God walking in the garden and they were hiding, they realized they were naked, what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together, remember, to cover their nakedness. It's interesting, in Genesis 3, 21, it says, it says that God covered their nakedness with animal skins. What lost its life by blood in the garden to cover the shame of nakedness? An animal. And it seems when you read the Old Testament, blood sacrifice was the most important sacrifice to deal with what? Sin. We just did it this morning. We came drinking the fruit of the vine, commemorating what? The blood of Jesus. We ate the bread, reminding us in that of the body of Jesus. Here's what I think. Very nice. You can go ahead and turn it off, whoever that is. It's all right. Somebody's hiding it. All right. Here's what I think happened in the garden. I think God told both brothers, bring a blood sacrifice. And here's what Cain decided to do. Well, you know, I'm a farmer. I'm just going to bring some fruits and vegetables. And God will be okay with that. He's loving. He's been good to me. And I'll just decide on my own what will be acceptable to God. And that is why God rejects Cain's offering. He's the first one outside of the garden. Watch. He's the first one outside of the garden who said, no, I'll determine what I think God thinks is enough. Instead of embracing what God said, this is what you are to do. And Cain thinking will kill us. We are not to do that. Our culture is dominated. Our, our spiritual culture in, in, in the West is dominated by this. Well, well, God, I know what God thinks. And we so many project upon God what God thinks is acceptable. There's only one place to know what is acceptable to God, and it's right here. It's not our opinion. Cain decides what he's going to bring will be acceptable enough, and God says, no, I'm not accepting that. And then watch, this, this also permeates, unfortunately, at times the church. Cain's mad at God for Cain's sin when God told him what to do, and he didn't obey it. And yet he's blaming God for God's response to the way Cain approached God in worship. We cannot do that. So Abel, affirmed by God, God's pleased with Abel. Why? Because he told both brothers, bring a sacrifice. Now we know later on that, that there were grain and there were other sacrifices from farmers, but the original picture was there, was that the primary way that you bring a sacrifice to worship was a blood sacrifice and it's clear 
that he rejects one brother's who brought another and he accepts one brother's not because God was being mean but because God had told them how they were to approach them it's interesting in Jude chapter 11 Cain is mentioned says that woe to them in Jude 11 woe to them for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion According to Jude 11, the mark of Cain was that he abandoned himself to selfish gain. God's perspective was that he was pleased with Abel and what Abel gives. Cain's thinking destroys, but Abel's kind of thinking and desire for obedience gains God's pleasure. And ultimately, you and I are responsible for who's going to rule our heart. And Abel shows how to do this rightly. It's unique about Abel. He's the first shepherd among many shepherds of the Old Testament who ultimately we have the great shepherd who is Jesus. He's the first martyr in the Bible. He is killed by his brother. Why? Because he did what was right and his brother was angry about God accepting his brother's sacrifice and he was killed because of his deeds of righteousness. You want a textual evidence of that? It's 1 John chapter 3 verse 12 it's interesting God's the first one who points to the coming of Christ in Genesis 3 15 but outside of the garden Abel is the first one who points to Christ outside of the garden his sacrifice pointed to Christ the blood sacrifice the only one that would be acceptable to God he's also the first voice of faith outside of the garden and interestingly he is the longest communicator of truth. Remember what it said there? That though he died, he what? He still speaks. He's speaking in this room today. The testimony of Abel. Do what is right by faith based on what God tells us <clears throat> to do. That is how we are to come to him. So a dead man is still speaking today in the room. All right, we got one more, and my voice is going to go. <clears throat> hey, Brad, can you do me a favor? There's a bottle of water in that silver refrigerator in there. All right, go to Genesis chapter 5 for a second. <clears throat> it makes me sound more rugged, right? Yeah. <clears throat> Let's talk about Enoch for a moment or maybe it's in the other one Brad Brad's lost in the kitchen can... uh, look at verse 5 of Hebrews 11 thank you sir yeah probably I think we moved them all thanks appreciate it yeah. Hebrews 11 5 by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Now I want to talk about him for a moment. This is interesting. We just have about 10 more minutes and we will be finished up uh, this morning. Who you and I listen to is really, really important. If you're a university student or you're a high school student, middle school student, I really need you to listen about Enoch. He's fascinating. 
He ought to be someone you ought to model your life after. Hebrews 11 unfolds. It points us back to Genesis. And we have two lines coming from Adam. The line of Cain and the line of Seth. Abel is gone. Eve conceives again, has a son named Seth. And Genesis begins to unfold and at the end of Genesis chapter 4. And then in Genesis chapter 5, we see um, those that are connected to the line of Seth. Let me talk about Cain's line just for a second. If you want to ever look at it, it's Genesis 4, 17 through 24. The first city to ever be named after a person was not named after a name of God or a characteristic of God. It was named after a son, and that was from Cain's line. First polygamist was a guy named Lamech in Genesis 4, 19, when the original model was one man and one woman. And so from Cain's line, you have someone who was the first polygamist. The first rancher and cattleman was a guy named Jabal in, in Genesis 4.20. The first musicians came from Cain's line. Jubal, uh, the, the lyre and the pipe in Genesis 4.21. The first metal workers came from Cain's line. First workers of bronze and iron. A guy named Tubal Cain in 4.22. And the first bold, arrogant bragger was a guy named Lamech in 4.23. Cain's line were the first to do a lot of things in, in regard to the advancements in the world. They are marked by, Cain's line is marked by things that our, our world really affirms. Not all of them are bad. That as we advance and we create things, God must be at the forefront of the things that we do. That he gets the glory for the things instead of themselves. But that was not the case with them. So they are connected to things like advancement, music, tools. Cain's line is marked for the most part, by worldly success. Interestingly, in Cain's line, there is no mention of God at all. At all. Do you see anything mentioned of God in Cain's line? It's marked by much ungodliness. But the genealogy of, of Cain shows no ages, while in Seth's it shows a lot of ages. Why? Why, why was there no interest in the ages of those who came from Cain. And it's just this. Why mark the ages and the names of those that live ungodly lives? God honors godliness. And so the scripture affirms that. Seth's line is interesting. There are three people of very strong faith. It doesn't mean the others didn't have strong faith. But we know of Seth. From Seth's line came Jesus. Enoch, that we'll talk about here. And Noah. And according to Genesis 4.26, Seth was the leader of an awakening where people began to call upon the name of the Lord. What a great thing to be called. If you're a student today, and you're not old like some of us, or older like some of us, one of the great things that your life ought to be marked by is that you lead your generation, at least your group, to call on the name of God. That's what Seth's line was marked by. In Genesis 4.26 tells us that. Every generation needs men and women who are marked by devoted love for the honor and glory of God's name. And it appears, <clears throat> according to the scripture, that at the birth of Seth's son Enosh, something happened in Seth's heart. He began to call upon God. Something unique happened at that time. And who or what a generation calls upon makes all of the difference. 
Look around at our American culture today. Look at the voices our culture says. Listen to that voice telling us to listen to them and confirm them. And I just say no thank you to all of that. There were two lines living side by side, Cain's line and Seth's line. And from Seth's line came this great awakening. As we journey down the line of Seth, we come to the seventh person from Seth, a guy named Enoch. You come to the seventh person from Cain's line, and it's this bold, arrogant polygamist called Lamech who just was focused on himself, and Enoch was focused on knowing God. Enoch's name means dedicated or initiated to God, and that is how he lived his life. He lived a life of beauty in a dark world. And there was a quality of his life that's not seen in much of the pages of the Old Testament. Verse 21 says that when he had lived 65 years, he fathered the oldest living person in the history of the world, Methuselah, who lived 969 years. So when he was 65, that was young then, when you're living 700 and 800 and 900 years, when he was 65, he experienced a transformation of incredible significance in his life. He became the father of Methuselah. So it says Enoch walked with God after, after, notice this, he walked with God after he fathered Methuselah for 300 years. He walked intimately and passionately with God. And he had other sons and daughters. This word walk in both the Greek and particularly in the Hebrew here means this step by step, daily connected to God for 300 years, walking with God in that way. We don't know anything about his views before age 65, but we know something happened at age 65 that he began to walk with God. Something dramatically changed in him. And is that not true of our lives? There's an event that happens in our lives where we are transformed and we, our life takes a new direction and we walk and follow with Him. This glorious path on the earth is that we are called to walk with God, the path of pursuing Him and walking in intimacy with Him. He set His mind on a holy pursuit to walk with God for the rest of His life. By the way, This word also, walk with God, means to walk pleasing, to be pleasing to God. He walked in a way that God looked at his life and said, I I commend that life. I affirm the way that life is being lived. Now, before he was taken, he was commended. God approved the way he lived as having pleased God. One does not live a life that pleases God and does not know God. That Those things can't be separated. You walk intimately with God daily for 300 years. You know God. You know His heart. You know His mind. And your life is just consumed by Him. And you see, the life of faith that pleases God is one where a person in word and deed embraces God in all things. I will not be like my culture. I'm going to embrace the truth of God. When you talk about this phrase, walked with God He did not run ahead of God. He did not lag behind God. He walked with God, side by side, walking with God in intimacy. You see, the call upon our lives is to walk in the pace of the Lord. Will we do it perfectly? No, we won't, but it is to be the aim of our lives. So Genesis 5.24 says, Enoch walked with God and he was not. For God took him. Hebrews eleven five first part says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he 
should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. We're about done here. And I want you to hear these last thoughts. Enoch, though this verse had not been written by King David yet, had already come to know something in the earliest days of planet earth. This is Psalm 1611. You make known to me the paths of life. So I'm going to walk it, in other words. And in your presence in that path, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I believe if you and I, in 2022, knew the truth of this verse, that God makes known to us the path of life, how we ought to live our lives, how we ought to worship Him. And when we're there, we know that there's fullness of joy that's present. And that God's pleasures become our pleasures. I think that you and I would wake up every day and we would run to that place to be with Him and to walk with Him in that kind of intimacy. Again, I want to highlight this for 300 years. He walked in the pace with his God to worship him. Enoch knew that God is the rewarder of the God walkers. That God rewards those who have faith. If that's not enough, well, what was he really like? We don't really know much about him other than he walked with God and God one day said, you can come on up here. Jude wrote something about Enoch, though he was a preacher in his generation. And Jude 14 says this in 15. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly. Now listen to this phrasing. To convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in an ungodly way. He's not trying to be cute here. He's, he's highlighting the reality is, is that just like our generation, there are ungodly things happening today that are being done un, in, in un, ungodly ways. I don't know if you knew this or not, but the UN is really working on this, and in some parts of the world it's been approved already. Because of all the abortion fight that is happening, particularly in our country now, and they're, they're, they're working to try to get this in our country, that you, um, if some states are outlawing abortion after certain things, they're working at it right now, that they will just mail to your house, bypassing doctors, the abortion pill, and you just take it at home. And they're working to do that all over the planet today. You can't get other medicines today that you might want, but you can get the one that's going to kill an unborn child. That's what Enoch's talking about. There are ungodly things being done in ungodly ways. And that was his generation. So when you go, well, you know, he, he, he doesn't know what our world's like. <clears throat> he lived up too close. Well, some of his people did near when the flood came. And it was an ungodly time. And so those who lived in his generation, interestingly, we're almost finished here. Listen to this. Do you know who was still alive when Enoch was on the earth? Adam was still alive. Seth was still alive. I don't know if you've ever looked at Genesis 5 and see all the people that were alive at the same time. Adam was still alive when Enoch was on the earth. Seth was alive. Enosh was alive. 
Malalel was alive, Jared was alive, and Noah's dad, Lamech, was alive as well. Enoch would have talked to Seth about what changed your life, Seth, when you started walking God after your son was born. In the midst of it all, Enoch spoke to his generation. He's the first earthly prophet speaking of coming judgment, coming upon the ungodly by angels. And because of the fact that he walked with God, he was able to gain insight from God for the challenging days in which he lived. What about you and I? Will we take the time to know Christ, to walk with him and to know him and have his words shape us and equip us for the days of our own where ungodly things are being done in ungodly ways? Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And so he walks with God for 300 years of uninterrupted fellowship, walking in a manner that pleased God. And so one day he wakes up. He was just going about his day. And maybe he and God went on a walk. And they just walked on up to heaven. As far as we can tell, that Enoch had no idea he was about to leave the planet. But he pleased God so much. Think about this. He pleased God so much where everybody in his generation and his family line were living 700, 800, 900 years. He lived 365 years. He pleased God so much that God just took him off the earth one day. Just took him off the planet. He didn't come home for dinner. He was gone and in the presence of God. He's an example of the verse at the end, the verses at the end of Hebrews 11 that say this. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might gain, rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. Some were sawn in two and killed by the sword. They went about not in fancy clothing, but they went about in skins of sheep and goats. They were destitute. They were afflicted, mistreated. And listen what verse 38 of Hebrews 11 says. And of whom the world was not worthy to have them live in their midst. They lived such righteous lives. They were wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. He believed God rewards those who walk with him. Psalm 5811 says there is a reward for the righteous. He lived pleasing to God. Those are just two people for 2022 that we ought to learn from. You approach God not like Cain. You approach God like Abel. Embracing and worshiping God the way that God has dictated and told us to do so. We don't approach him like Cain, who just decided on his own to do this. And then we walk with him. So Abel shows us how to worship by faith. Enoch shows us how to walk by faith. Let's pray.